Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a parenting podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, Bobby Warshaw, the author of When the Dream Became Reality, is back on the show, and he and I discuss what is the cost of greatness. The conversation starts at that simple question that Bobby poses, and we take it into directions I did not expect it to go. It is a fantastic conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So stick around. Be right back after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is author extraordinaire, Mr. Bobby Warshaw. Bobby, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Author extraordinaire. I don't know if that's true, but I appreciate it. That feels good to hear. Well, I mean, your book, When the Dream Became Reality, is one of my top five favorite books of all time. I just actually got done re-re-re-re-reading re, it recently because I enjoy it that much. And that's what prompted me to go, let me let me reach out to Bobby. Let me get him back on the show. There's a lot that's not going on, I think, in the world of sports, but I would really just love to get your perspective on your professional career since the last time we spoke, what you foresee as the future of sports and soccer in our culture moving forward past Corona and COVID-19 and all of that. So I'm, I want to dig into that. But first, like, how have you been and what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? Oh, I've been good. At more long term, uh, I left my job at MLS Digital. Uh, my contract was up and I was just ready for something new. You know, I really liked what I did. I love MLS. I really enjoyed being in the media. But long term, I, I wasn't sure it was the right job for me. You know, sure. I, I'd rather do soccer than talk about soccer. Right. I get that. Um, so the last two or three months, I've just been learning some new skills to try and set me up for whatever that means. A little bit of uh, coding data analysis, some Spanish, a few other things. Uh, and more immediately, you know, like everyone else in the world, we're just trying to get day by day. I mean, literally, like yeah. moment by moment, day by day. Um, we've been in a studio in New York with my girlfriend, which is not in an ideal time to be in a small little apartment in New York City. But overall, we're doing great. That's awesome. I really want to know, do you, are you thinking about writing another book? Is that on your mind? Do you think there's another sequel or if not a sequel, just another type of book in you? Or do you think you're kind of one and done with the memoir? So I can tell you, I'm definitely not close to writing another memoir. If I were to do another book right now, the book that I would want to write, especially after the reaction, not the reaction, but just whatever came after Kobe Bryant. And the oh, way that yeah. everyone perceived Kobe was the idea of what is the cost of greatness? Yeah. You know, like, especially in the Michael Jordan documentary right now. Yes. And what is the human cost and just within ourselves of shooting for greatness? Yeah. Um, we all remember Kobe and MJ now as these incredibly mythical figures, but I would bet that if anybody were to trade their soul to be here, you know, have a big Kobe Bryant for those 15 years, it's not something that people would have been, would have been able to deal with. Right. Uh, so I think that'd be a really cool, a uh, little bit of a research book to talk to these incredibly accomplished people across the world and say, for you and your soul as a person, you know, what did you have to give up for that greatness? You know, that's 
a really interesting topic. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that because uh, I had this as something to talk about, and we might end up talking the whole episode about this has been, I've been really into recently consuming docudrama. So you mentioned uh, The Last Dance with uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, right? I just finished watching Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix. And yeah. and I'm also watching Dark Side of the Ring on Vice TV. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um, I used to be a professional wrestling fan back in the day. And so, uh, but all, all of these are viewing the specific individuals through this athletic lens and really examining what does success look like, or more specifically, what is the cost of greatness? And I think, you know, have you seen uh, Sunderland Till I Die? I haven't yet. Okay. Uh, for reasons we could talk about later. Sure. It's on my, obviously, it's on my list, but I have not seen it yet. Right. I I totally get it. Might be a little uh, a little too too close. Um, but I think I, I was even I was even having this conversation with um, uh, with a, a, a friend the other day, and we were talking about the fact that, and I, I would really actually would love to get your perspective on this with regards to sports. I think so. For those that are not familiar in European soccer or in most soccer leagues around the world, but specifically in British soccer, which is what the documentary series is centered around, this team Sunderland does poorly. They're in the top major league. They get what's called relegated. So if you do poorly, you get dropped down to a lower league and then you play. And if you are successful, you get promoted. If you're bad again, you get relegated to a lower league. So it's envisioning, it's it's not just envisioning, it's, um, it's painting this picture for you of there is a cost. There's a literal physical cost of greatness. If you're great, you get more money, you get more revenue, you get better players, you get more opportunities. If you're relegated, you get less money. You have to let people go. You have to let all the staff go. And it's bounced back and forth. And I was I was telling my friend, I said, you know, in American sports, if you do poorly, then you have, I think maybe the NHL is a good example of this. The Pittsburgh Penguins were terrible. They were absolutely terrible, but they got Sidney Crosby for number one pick in the draft because they were so terrible. And then they were able to build the team around him. And so I think there's this idea and this concept of, well, there is a silver lining in this. If we're bad, we at least get an opportunity to get a good player and build our team around it. LeBron James, Cleveland Cavaliers, perfect example as well. But in this European soccer, in Sunderland, they're bad. There is no silver lining. You drop down. So I'd really love to get like your perspective on the dichotomy between the American sports and the draft and the, and the silver lining versus soccer and the, or specifically the European sport soccer and how the promotion yeah. relegation works. Well, I find that the most interesting dichotomy is just within the cultures themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I grew up in the United States, of course. I played in Major League Soccer, and the United States is really probably the most capitalist country of all the Western civilizations. And then all of a sudden, in our professional sports leagues, it's as, you know, probably really as socialist as it comes, or if you, if you yeah. fail, you are supported if you succeed, you are essentially dragged back down. Right. You know, and we all love our sports leagues. And then I went to play in Scandinavia, which is the opposite. It's about as a socialist, social welfare net, social support system as all the Western civilizations. And then the sports leagues are just completely ruthless. Yeah. Uh, and I was on a team that got relegated. And I know the idea of promotion relegation is exciting. And it, it's something that fans want and enjoy. But I'll tell you what, being inside that locker room is not, and I don't say this lightly, it's not something I would wish on another person. Wow. It was 
aside from all of like the actual real world things that are horrible, you, losing loved ones and you know, basically what the world is experiencing now, uh, it was the worst that, you know, probably the worst I've ever been through. That's insane. And I think you re- what I, one thing that I appreciated in the documentary, I know you haven't watched it, but they examine what, so in season one, there's no spoilers. You can look this up information, but in season one, it starts the premises. They've gotten relegated from the English premier league down to the championship, which is the next tier down. And towards the end of the season, when they're not doing as well, and they're faced with the potential of being relegated down to league one, they examine the staff, the kitchen staff, the office staff, all of these people, and they crunch the numbers on how they're going to have to survive is by laying off several individuals. And we don't think about that when we think about the fact that if a team gets relegated and their budget is cut and they have to pay these giant contracts or let them go, they're going to have to let somebody go. And that blew my mind because I had never, I know it seems silly, but I'd never considered the cost of greatness in that sense. I hadn't, I hadn't either until I was in this scenario and it probably took me until maybe seven or eight games left in a year. And it was pretty clear that we were going to get relegated. We stunk, (laughs) but we stunk largely just because we had players who were more focused. I'm sure it's a, it's, this is not a unique story. They were more focused, focused on their own careers. Right. And after practice, our practices were a total disaster. We'd go up to lunch and you would have the people that cook and serve your lunch and it was so clear to, to anybody with half a brain that these people are going to lose their jobs if we got relegated. Right. And every single day in practice from like the seventh or eighth game, you know, once we had seven or eight games left, I would say to the guys, you might be messing around right now. You might not care because your career will survive. But the fact that you are giving half effort in practice right now is costing the people that we say hello to 30 minutes from now their li- their livelihood, their job. Yeah. And it was, it was a surreal feeling how – how much people didn't recognize, how I didn't even recognize it, right? Until it was right in front of me. And how even when people did start to realize it, they still didn't care. That was really disheartening. That was one of the harder things I've been through. You know, I think when we talk about the, the, I guess, I don't know any other words for it than maybe a forced parody within um, major, or not all the major sports within America. You've got that that, you know, socialistic mindset of everybody's equal and we're going to find ways to increase that parity. So that way there's, everybody has a chance. I think you're right in that. There's a lot of cultural influence there. I mean, America, we're the country that loves a good underdog story. We love being able to see the team go through March madness and just go on a run. We eat that up. And I think I wonder, Can I tell you, we're going to yeah. talk about that next, Joe. Finish your sentence, and okay. then I'm going to come back to this. Okay, okay, okay. I just, I wonder if perhaps this this mindset of how the country was created, the, the root cause for why we're creating and, and putting these leagues together is people are working hard. They're getting here, and we don't want to punish someone, quote unquote, by, by getting through and getting the American dream and they've gotten there. Now we're, we're going to give them every opportunity to stay there. And it's, it's on you to keep pulling yourself up by your bootstraps kind of a thing, but we're not going to impose that forced um, relegation on you. But what, what, what's your point there? I'm going to take this to two places. Okay, cool. One is that so many of these sports owners whose families became wealthy because of the capitalist structure of our society, then use their sports team and do not care about winning, but understand that the social safety net of their league, and as you said, the forced parity, ensures them a certain floor 
of their revenue. Yeah. So they don't have to care about succeeding, but because the structure is set up the way it is, it allows them to keep making money. That's another tangent. Yeah. So what I do <laughs> want to say point. about what I do want to say about the underdog thing is I think the I think the the idea that Americans like underdogs so much is so weird because the point <laughs> of an underdog the point of an underdog is that it's effectively an anomaly. It right. was not preserved. That the whole point of America is that you can work hard and through your hard work you can achieve and move your way up. All of a sudden, the whole point of an underdog is this group of human beings who didn't work as hard, and therefore they didn't work as hard, so they weren't as good, can get lucky on any single day and defeat the people that did work harder to get better, to achieve more, is so weird to me with our society. And I get it. Like, nothing about our society makes sense. Right. Right? Especially now more than ever. But I just think that the idea of the underdog – I hate I, – I don't like underdogs. I think the team that is better and actually, like, when – I understand that sports are largely about luck, but the team that is better and that worked harder to get there, I want them to succeed. Sure. I'm just thinking of the little giants when you were talking about any given day. It's like just one day, just one time we could win. (laughs) (laughs) Big little giants fan here. So I like that. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Um, I think about, you know, when we talk about Americans loving underdogs and that, and that idea and, and, you want and yeah, sports are largely about luck. But I just I was so fascinated when the movie Moneyball came out and they talked through the statistical way to build a championship winning team. And that like blew my mind and also made so much sense to me in that you're playing the you know the the law of averages here. If you need to get on base to score runs to win games logically you should get the people to get the most hits and then you can build that statistic out. And then the Red Sox adopted most of that theory um, in order to finally break the curse. And I think, I think truthfully what we love is we've been telling ourselves, I think culturally we've been telling ourselves this idea and it dates back to, I I believe, um, Oh, where was I reading it? I don't remember if it was when I was reading eight, uh, we were eight years in power by Tennessee Coates or if it was, a different book, but we talked about the fact that we have taught ourselves and our society, this mindset and this idea that if you work hard, put in, um, put in the time, then, you know, anything can happen and you can, you can rise above it and get there. And so we're almost, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're almost telling ourselves two things, right? We're telling ourselves you can get lucky, win the lottery, be the underdog, win on any given day. But then we're also saying, that you got to work hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and then that's the way to succeed. Whereas I think culturally, we're kind of dominated by people who are almost born into these better situations. And and I would really love to get your perspective on why you think or what you think culturally we've been telling ourselves to build out these mentalities that we're applying to sports or work or business or whatever. I also just watched the movie Parasite, so that's also on my mind as well. South Korea is a little bit different than America, but it's almost a little bit worse with this kind of born into higher higher classes situation. Oh, I have so many class. I have so many thoughts on this. Yes. Can you refine your the question there? Or yes. Like narrow it for me. Yeah. Let so me, I don't just go off on twenty minutes. No, you're good. Uh, so let me narrow it and say, how do you think? Or let me let, let's even narrow it more and say, let's say, um, do you feel that the higher, let's say the the one percent, right? Let's say that the one percent of America has historically built in this mindset of working hard and getting lucky, so that the other ninety nine percent 
um, are kind of trapped in this cycle. Yeah. And, yeah, that, and does anybody does anybody deny that except for the people with which the right, benefit? <laughs> right, but I think that we still even even through acknowledging it, I do think that there is still this mentality of this is the, like this sucks, this is the way it is, but I still got to do it. And I think I almost start I'm almost wondering if we're going to start seeing that shift uh, a bit as as we start calling it out and people start kind of building their own rules and and societies and and communities well it might it might happen now during covid because right. the whole point the whole point of our economic structure is that super rich people know what to do with their money for the greater good more than the government does except right now we've got a whole bunch of really rich people who are sitting on their damn money right and not actually helping society and if it actually had been distributed properly uh but yeah i find this to be you know, there's a great the, the best example of this, I think, is like the myth about the NBA, right? There's this general idea that the NBA is a bunch of, and this is like, obviously there's so many subtexts cached in here, so I apologize for that. But You're the fine. idea of the NBA is that the NBA in basketball is the route out, is the way out for so many oh, yes. Americans. Right. But the truth is that even the NBA, I think it was the Washington Post did a study two years ago that showed even the NBA, the zip code with which you are born, is a great indicator, like even even more of an indicator, or just as good of an indicator as your actual height to make it into the NBA. And that right. for every LeBron James, there's actually way more Michael Jordans who are born into middle class or upper, upper middle class America. Right. So yeah, like everybody realizes the myth within America, except for the people that have the power. And this has been so. I just did you ever read Howard Zinn's book about this? Oh uh, no, I did not. So Howard Zinn, he's like the foremost author on this, and like what you would realize is that this has actually been true since literally 1700. Wow. Uh, there's no point in American history when this fact wasn't true, that the, that America was controlled by the wealth, by like the wealthy uh, corporation. That's fascinating to me. Just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. We think it's a uniquely 2020 or, you know, 20, whatever it is, 19, nine, 1989 problem on. It's right. actually mostly been true since 1700. Right. Since it was Christopher um, Columbus did a genocide. Right. There was um now I remember what I was thinking of uh Tennessee Coates's book. He talks in that book. He he had an article which if you're not familiar with that book, anybody that's listening, go pick it up. He collects a series of essays that he wrote while President Obama was in the office and for the for the Atlantic, right? Uh yes, series of pieces for the Atlantic and then he also gives his thoughts now like in in I think the book came out in 2018 2019. So at the beginning of each quote unquote chapter, he writes his reflective thoughts now rereading his pieces years later. And then the second part of the chapter is his piece. So it's, it's a great like kind of retrospective. Um, And he puts a lot of context around it, but he talks about, he wrote this piece about um, it was around reparations and the, the, how, how complicated it is. But then he also talks about how, you know, people talk about, like he references, and I, I do apologize. I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of this, but I know it's in the book. He talks about how when the New Deal was structured with FDR, there were very definitive lines drawn. The way he was able to get a bipartisan agreement was by allowing people to determine where the housing developments were going to be, in which parts of the state, in which parts of the city, and which people of color or white people were where. And yeah, this is redlining, right? Yes. This is like the Thank actual, the actual the practice phrase. of redlining. Yes, exactly. And so mm-hmm. that's how we got bipartisan agreement. That's how we started, you know, started the redlining. That's how you started getting people in lower 
income areas versus better income areas because you were literally drawing it out on a map. Here's the designated area for people of color. Here's the designated area for white people. And then that was what, 30s, 40s, 40s. And now we've come, you know, all the way up to 2020 and we're still having this. So, and then, yeah. and, and then even then it had been going on for years and years. And it was just another example of the systemic racism built in and, yeah. and why reparations are so complicated. He went into that, but I, but, but so you have this, um, to your point about the, about the zip code, it has immense bearing on people being able to, to get ahead, not even in just yeah. sports, but in, in business and, and I read a good piece. Yeah. I want to add before, yeah. sorry, before you venture too far, no, I want to add to your, to your Franklin Roosevelt World War II thing. And first of all, Joe, I love that we went from promotion relegation to reparation. <laughs> that's, that's the mark to me of a good conversation. I hope, you're, I hope your listeners enjoy it because that yes. to me is like the conversations I live for. <laughs> yes. Um, but there's a, there's a part in, in the Zen book, and I've read this a couple times, where just to put America in like this, the perspective of America that we've built into perspective is that post-World War II, when the Americans were occupying Europe, effectively, the Germans were like, you guys are really calling us out. Like, they would, they would say to the black troops, like, you guys are really looking down on us? Like, yeah. look at your country, look at your troops right now, right. right? Just the fact that your troops are segregated, the fact that the way you treat your black troops, the way you treat, your, you know, your non-waspy white people. Right. And that, that was like one of the main things remember from this book. It's like, wait, even Germany, 1940, whatever it was, 1945 was looking down on us in the world. Um, was something that stuck with me. Right. I just finished. Have you watched hunters on Amazon prime? No, I it got, it got mediocre reviews. So there's so many good shows. I, if I see one mediocre, <laughs> review, mediocre review, there's, there's a hundred shows out there. With perfect reviews. No, I totally get that. Um, I didn't see any of the reviews, but I, a lot of the reviews have, uh, are centered around the, um, almost sensationalizing the concentration camps because they do a lot of flashbacks. Um, and for anybody that's not familiar, the premise of hunters is there are a group of people, some who are Jewish, uh, most of the people in there are some type of, um, minority group. Um, and they come together and they're Nazi hunters essentially. And they're Nazis living within America and they go hunt them. That's the premise of it. They're called hunters. But through that, they expose, they talk about the Nuremberg trials and how they were essentially, they say that they were essentially a joke in that America knew and these other powers knew that the minds of these Nazi scientists were so great that they wanted to utilize them. So they did a big show to put some people, you know, on trial and then they helped hide the rest of them. And I thought this cannot be real. This can't possibly be real. And there's, there's a thing called operation paperclip is what they reference in there. And I went and looked it up after the end of the episode. And it, it is true. I, I believe it's not as full out as the show made it out to be. And I think that's some of the criticisms, but it was a real thing where they had these brilliant minds and they helped integrate them into American society so they could utilize their talents for NASA and for other things. And that just blew my mind and made me feel a little sick, quite frankly. And I mean, but to your point, I mean, I think it's, you have people that are making these grand decisions about where people should live and who's right and who's wrong. And, you know, people who are kind of making these decisions and, and now I really just want to like get your perspective on what do 
I mean, I think it's great having all this information, but it, it gets me to a point sometimes where I go, what am I even supposed to do know. with this information? You know? I know. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is a full chapter in the book where yeah. I, I contemplate this, right? Like if, and it's really hard for any of us, any of us who are born into a privileged class, a privileged status, which really in this country just makes you like a white male. Right. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Because you are given so many benefits. So then we look back at that moment of awakening, whether it's for some 15, 18, 30, 35 years old, whatever it is. And what do you what are you supposed to do? And like I found short of like giving away my entire life and starting over. I didn't have a satisfactory answer. And the truth is I just, I went on living and I continue to go on living with this idea that like I'm being a little bit of a coward and I'm a little bit taking the easy way out and I don't know how to reconcile that. Right. You know, cause I can acknowledge that what is the, what would really make me feel okay inside? Yeah, probably just like, you know, like I said, giving it away and starting over. Um, I obviously don't have the guts to do that. Yeah. So Joe, I totally feel where you're coming from. Um, and I don't know how to make sense of it in right. my head. Right. And you know, it's, it's interesting to me too, because we think about, you know, kind of along those same lines of who's right, who's wrong, how is history written and really kind of going back to the cost of greatness, right? We, we, as Americans, we've been told, you know, or people have wanted to trumpet, um, no pun intended, America is the best, America is great, you know, America first, all this different kind of stuff. And, and it's, what is the cost of greatness? You know, we're, we're saying we're first, we're the best, but what's at what cost? And I think you can see historically where we've, you know, certain groups of the population will say, you know, white men specifically have historically put others down in order to be great and to make America great, so to speak. And, and I, I even wonder about, you know, on an individual level, I think it, it can get a little, uh, I like to call it high stakes fatigue, where if we start pulling this out and pulling this out and backing up and backing up, it can get to a point where it's, it's dizzying, you know, looking at it from certain heights. But I think when we examine an individual's perspective in a system and whether like say sports, for example, um, I think about the fact I read this article and I do not recall who it was by. It might've been, um, it was several years ago. It might've been sports illustrated or ESPN. They talked about the fact where people had said, you know, America is always dominant in sports. Why are we, why are the men's national team not dominant at the world cup? What are we doing? What are we doing wrong? And there was a lot of, well, our athletes are going to play basketball, football, all this different stuff. And they boiled it down to say, well, if you look at Brazil and you look at Argentina, the kids that are playing, they're growing up playing the sport and they're being integrated into these academies and these teams. And America is only allowing, it's pay to play. And if you have the money, for the most part, you can play. And I think we're starting to see a shift with, you've got MLS academies and you've got other academies that are bringing people in. But how, do, how does one even change that structure on that basic level to be able to allow, like you're yeah. interested, you're playing to get integrated into these academies like we see other countries doing. Yeah. So that's a, a really complicated question about the way <laughs> soccer works in this country. Sure. Because it's not like we're, we're not not winning the World Cup because we're pay to play. Most countries are pay to play, right? Um, yeah. You know, if, you, if you're new to soccer, effectively the idea is that 
if you are an elite player in the United States, you usually have to pay 1500 to $3,500 you know, $3, per month, depending where you are in the country, for your field space, for your coaches, for your insurance, for your uniforms, for all those things. Um, and then there are 25 free teams, which are the MLS teams. Um, my point is that like every country in the world has, has kids paying for soccer. And then the people at the top don't pay. Gotcha. I mean, that's just like England, France. Like there's always people paying and the best people not paying. Um, so this pay for this pay to play thing is uh, something that people say because it sounds good and it gets people fired up, but it's not totally ingenuous. Okay. Um, and it's also just like this is you're in the whole a category. The, the the bigger reason is that the bigger reason we're not winning a World Cup is because we just like don't have a culture of kids playing soccer away from soccer. Or sure. if we do, it's within cultures that are not identified by the larger system. Um, and that also uh, makes people mad. Yeah. I don't think that it's a conspiracy that our U.S. soccer system misses Latin, Hispanic, Mexican communities. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's like something they do on purpose. Um, they just the, the country's changing. U.S. soccer hasn't done a good job of figuring out that landscape. Right. Um, that's the bigger thing. It's we don't have kids touching the soccer ball enough because we don't have a culture where kids play soccer at recess and play soccer after school before their regular practice. You're right. People are playing basketball and football. And I don't even think it's that. I'm not even sure they're playing basketball or football. I just don't. I think that they are uh, playing video games. Uh, gotcha. You know, driving in cars to practice opposed to walking ten minutes. Um, I think the idea that we have, we have more than enough, we can, with, with 300 million people, we have what, five, 330 million. We literally have almost five times as many people as France. Yeah. So we could, based on numbers, we could be better at them in basketball, football, baseball at the top four sports and still have people left over essentially. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, it's not a numbers game. It's not the fact that we're losing people to other sports or our top athletes because the best athletes for basketball and football are different than the best athletes for soccer. It's just, for whatever reason, the people that are getting identified within the system are not playing soccer enough. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think Yeah. I think you're accurate in when you think about, like I'm, I'm thinking right now and I'm going, you know, what you do when you're not being forced to do something essentially is like what you're naturally gravitated to. Like uh, I played hockey with this guy who's very elite, went on to play pro. Everybody assumed he was going to because he was the guy that was always playing some type of hockey or stick handling or just doing something to progress himself in the sport when we were off the ice. And nobody else wanted to do that. Everybody else wanted to go do, you know, talk to girls, go see a movie, do a bunch of nothing, whatever. But he was the one that was consistently doing that. And so I just, I just think about that was the thing he was drawn to. That's the thing that propelled him forward. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about kids playing soccer away from soccer. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, so you go back to the original conversation on how do you move up in something. There's right. a pretty direct correlation between hours committed and total reps to your overall ability. Um, but the So there is a way in sports, unfortunately it doesn't actually apply to a lot of the high-paying jobs within this. Like you can't practice being a consultant. You can't right. practice being a lawyer, a doctor, right? You right. only start that when you're... But with the, the, these other sports, there's a pretty direct correlation between the number of minutes and hours to how good you get. And if you're only practicing during practice hours, which is largely our culture within American soccer right now, right. you're not going to be better than the people who play in between those, those designated hours. 
Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of core lessons that you can take from, you know, when we're talking about you can practice sports, right? But you can't practice being a doctor until you, you start the schooling and start getting in there, that kind of a thing. I think one thing that I'm realizing, the older and older I get working in the corporate world is there's a lot of kind of life lessons that I'm learning on how to even just react to situations, how to conduct myself, how to present myself in the best way possible. And I think those are some skills that I was being taught, whether constructively or, or critically while I was playing sports, I'm recognizing it now when I'm looking back with a lens of, Oh, this is how I deliver that. You know, this is how I host that meeting confidently. This is how I deliver these positive attributes of myself, like that kind of a thing. Um, Yeah. It just makes you realize how, how inadequate the education system is like, right. What do we need trigonometry for? Right. You know, really world civilizations are world civilizations are incredibly important. Like they're not as important as how the damn stock market works. Right. You know, they're not as important as you said about leading a meeting. Right. Uh, It's just like you, you look back and you think to yourself, what did I do? I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to, how to pay an electric bill. Right. But I know how to find a derivative on a, you know, (laughs) Um, but it's funny you yeah. say that because I coach a, an under 15 girls team here in New York City. And we have these Zoom, you know, obviously we're not practicing. We're doing all of our practices over Zoom. And we're trying to help them with some of these soft skills. So we did a session on, you know, intra team communication, right? Making oh, yourself good. vulnerable, identifying yeah. one of the people are vulnerable. We've also, and this is something that I've been pushing for, is we've given them projects and not big projects. You know, they have enough schoolwork. You want soccer to be fun, but we've given them these little projects with very vague, uh, with very vague parameters because one thing that you're not prepared for is in school, you get a one pager for everything that tells you the exact rules of your assignment or your project. Then you get to the real world and your boss is like, I need this thing. Get it to me next week. Right. We have been giving them these assignments with that are incredibly vague the the team were everything and just figure it out guys do a good job and then they do the project and then we also talk to them about presenting you know how do you talk in a way that is and, and it's obviously particularly important with young women um who you know we uh, with with the young women who we want to not get drowned out by the, the 15 year old boys which right. we do see some right um so anyway, yeah, this is a good opportunity in these Zoom meetings to work on some of these things you're referring to. Yeah, I think you're you're so accurate because you do get clear cut directions and this is what you do to get a good grade and succeed. This is what you do to fail, whether high school, college, you know, et cetera, any level of learning that's what you're getting, you get into the real world and I think you almost rarely have clearly defined expectations with the projects you are working on. And you have to know to ask questions, to seek out, to understand the real ask underneath the actual ask to get ahead. And that is something that I think can really set people back if you're not used to seeking out the root question and the root cause of whatever is driving the project. Yep. Yep. What are some other, so what, what's another thing that you're, you're realizing, you know, at our age now that you're unequipped for and you wish someone had helped you with at 16? You know, I think just, 
I think just trying, you know, it took me a long time to really understand how good I of like a person I am. And it was because I had a horrible coach who was so critical of me and my skill when I was playing hockey. And I think, you know, he was very quick to pass judgment on something. And I could recognize when others that I was on the team with were doing the same, if not worse, and they weren't getting called out. And it, it took me, he never came out and said it. It didn't take me till years later where I realized he must have like, this was my, this is my guessing. Right. And I think it goes back a little bit to, to some, some stuff you covered in your book, but he either really like, I did something to really set him off and that I was never going to come back from that. Or he saw a lot of potential in me and was frustrated, but had zero idea how to vocalize that. And what I've learned years later has been when someone's being constructive, not constructive, uh, critical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, being critical of me in that situation, I, you know, I hear it and then I immediately come and say, okay, well, how am I not supposed to do that? How am I supposed to succeed? What do you want from me? Just come talk to me. Don't go around, beat around the bush. Come talk to me face to face, person to person. Let's hash it out. Let's squash the beef. Let's figure it out. Let's work together moving forward because I want to help you. You want to help me. We will all want to get ahead. Let's do it. And I think the lesson I was taught was to just try and fix it and fingers crossed it works. And that's not a, that's not helpful in any situation. And it took me way too long to learn that lesson. I'm glad I have it now. And it's something that I am passing, you know, paying it forward and passing on that lesson as much as I can. But that was, man, it took, ugh, sports did a little bit of damage yeah. at a certain point to be sure that is and that is a hugely valuable piece that you learn in sports is the ability to resolve conflict directly and i didn't know that because i spent my whole life within teams until i was you know 29 years old right and then i joined an office in a real world and you realize how much conflict lingers and disagreement and suboptimal performance lingers right just because aren't willing you know within a sports team and a soccer team if something was wrong you have a film session and i tell you know steve steve whatever um dude like you got to step the line you have to squeeze you're you're letting us you know you're screwing us because you're doing this wrong right and then it's talked about you yell at each other five minutes later it's fine whereas in the real world in an office these things linger for so long yeah and it's it's a weird dynamic yeah it's suboptimal dynamic Right. And I think one, like going, building off of that, I really had to learn to tell people how I wanted to be interacted with and how I wanted to be developed. And, and I realized, uh, you know, cause I was getting to a point where I'm like, I don't know why I'm frustrated, why this is lingering all the things you said. And I recognize I'm like, it's because I like to get it done. Like confront me. Let's be direct about it. Let's hash it out. Let's talk through it. That's how I like to be interacted with. I don't like this lingering and going. And then me finding out about the fact that there's a problem six months down the line when it's too late to do anything about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't have a good segue, but I do want to say <laughs> we were having so such good segues. Um, but I think, you know, when I, when I'm thinking about here, here we go. Here's my through point. I'm going to bring it back around. I think all of these pieces, right? So we're talking about lessons that we wish we had 
and it's what is you know what is the cost of greatness i think greatness can look differently whether you're an athlete or whether you're a professional adult working to to get ahead in life and i think it can come at a cost if you're focused on the wrong things and you know i talked to, i touched a little bit on dark side of the ring and you know this is a professional wrestling it's a performance art right so you got these these athletes who are going through a choreographed set of moves for the most part, some are improv and some stuff goes wrong. And the crazy part about it is typically there's one major league, right? WWE, but all of these guys are contract workers. So they don't even have, um, you know, they have a set contract, but they're not, they don't have benefits. They don't have, in most cases, they don't have guaranteed contracts. They can be let go. And you see time and time again, these guys don't know how to invest their money because they didn't learn these things. And so when they get let go, they spiral. I mean, there was, um, the most recent episode I was watching about this classic guy, Dino Bravo, who was in Montreal and then went to WWF at the time and then got let go and didn't know what to do and used his you know, physique to be an enforcer for the mob. And then, you know, he, uh, you know, was uh, killed and presumably by the mob because he did something wrong. And yeah, and this is dark and, and awful. But I think it's he wanted to be great so bad and he was great. And then another company came along and was greater and he wanted to be great. And then his ego uh, got hurt and he didn't know how to invest. He didn't know how to compromise and things spiraled down. And I think. I say all of that to say, and there's so many cautionary tales like that throughout all of life, but I think you, one of my mantras that I love is you do the best you can with what you know, but when you know better, do better. And I think knowing all these lessons now, later on, I wish I knew them sooner, but I didn't. I did what I thought was right, but I do know now. So I'm adjusting and then I'm passing these lessons on yeah. so other people can be greater yeah. and better. There's there's the uh, President Obama quote: "Better is good." Yes, you know everyone wants to get it perfect or wants to nail it, but like it's actually okay to just do it a little bit better. Yes. Uh, you know what thought that comes to mind when you talk about that is this trade-off in professional achievement. On when is it right to leave something you love, something you're good at, something you really make an, enough money at? for the next thing up the ladder. Mm. And maybe it's because it's more money, maybe it's more, more prestige, but why are we all in such a need to depart happiness? Right. Right? Like it isn't the whole point of achieving things to, to attain happiness, and then you attain happiness, and all of a sudden the priority is achievement. Right. And whether that's money or professional acc accolades or recognition, you know, it depends on the person. We've all done this, right? Like I left – I shouldn't say I left. Yeah, I guess I did. Like I left teams or wanted to leave teams, whatever was next. And we see it all the time. We've even the biggest, the biggest professional athletes who are the man or the woman in their team in their city. And you're like, this person already makes enough friggin' money. They don't need more money. Why are they going somewhere else? Like there's, there's almost no chance that the next thing they do will make them happier than where they are now. Yep. And yet we all pretty much take the next. It's a really weird element I haven't been able to figure out. Yep. Well, that is a good place to leave it. And as we are transitioning into my favorite part of the episode, the dad joke of the week, it's a segment where I hurl my dad jokes at my unsuspecting guests in an attempt to get them to laugh while the audience groans. But I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guests, so it works out. But I always like to put my guest on the spot first. Bobby, do you have any dad jokes you would like to offer up? Do I have any 
I, I don't at this moment, which I'm, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. I, I have a few. Um, uh, Bobby, I wanted you to know uh, that I made a pencil with two erasers, um, but it was pointless. <laughs> pointless. That's good. I'll laugh at that. That's good. Um, you know, I the other day I decided I'm just going to sell my vacuum cleaner. It was just gathering dust. It was just gathering dust. And Bobby, uh, <laughs> I got one last one for you. What do you call an elephant that doesn't matter? An irrelevant. Uh, the first one was good. Yep. The first, the yeah. first one was very good. <laughs> uh, well, Bobby, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, Joe, this feels very good to say. They, there is no way. I don't really use Twitter at this point. I don't use Instagram. I've got nothing to push. I've got no brand to care about. Uh, I'm just here for these conversations. That is perfect. Well, I will say if you really want to get in touch with Bobby and you listen to the show, you can just send an email to me, detoxpodcast at gmail.com, and uh, I'll pass the note along. Um, and other than that, we need a hashtag for this episode, Bobby. Should we go with hashtag cost of greatness? Yeah, I feel like that's a good one. Perfect. In so many ways. We took that in so many different directions. It was great. Uh, that it was just cool to explore the different facets. Bobby, you are welcome back anytime you want. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed it at least half as much as we have, because this went in a million different directions that I was super happy for. So, Bobby, thank you again so much. I look forward to having you back on soon. And uh, listeners, next week we'll be back with Jonathan Horton. The Olympic medalist is back, and he is going to be promoting his autobiography, his memoir, uh, Falling Forward. Uh, so you need to get your hands on that copy and read it because we'll be discussing that at length in the next episode. But until then, uh, just remember hashtag cost of greatness and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.